and fasten your seat belts. We ordinarily remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at three significant passages and work our way through them this morning on the subject to be married or to be single. Now, am I crazy or what to touch this with a 10-foot pole? There are people who are very happy who are married and people who are very unhappy who are married. There are people who are very happy single and people who are very unhappy single. And the unhappiness, whether married or single, is such a, a, a big, 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 deep issue because it's, it's all of life. It's not just one little part of life. It's, it's such a huge issue that to touch this, I recognize, needs all the care and gentleness in the world. When you address someone's unhappiness. A couple of weeks ago, I put an x-ray of our grandson Carter's broken arm. And you can see the arm just completely displaced in the x-ray. And it made us all wince. It makes me wince to still think about it. When someone's bone is broken, you take care in how you touch and how you treat. I try to take care this morning in how we touch this subject. We're going to present three passages, and the first two are, are necessary to have both, not one or the other. The first passage is Genesis 2, and it's the positive case for being married. And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians 7, the positive case for being single. And then I claim that I'm going to tell you the secret of being happy from Philippians chapter 4. Now, what a, a claim! Okay, let's pray that God would uh, use this morning's message from his word to, to help us gain the kind of gladness that he can give. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be at work in us this morning through these passages, whatever our circumstance, whatever our stage of life, uh, whether we are married or single or whatever you know, the dynamic is, uh, whether young or old being married or single. And Father, draw us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Already this is an elaboration of an earlier passage, Genesis chapter 1. We're walking through this series about um, issues in life. Living on earth as citizens of heaven. What are the issues in life? And we're kind of walking through life chronologically. And Marty led us off with the wonder years. Questions our young people ask, who am I? He turned to Genesis 1. We are made in the image of God for fellowship with him, given purpose in life. Uh, then we talked about God's gift and how to handle it, the sex drive. Genesis 1, God made us male and female and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2 is an elaboration of that. Last week we talked about finding God's will. What should I do with my life? You can kind of see how we're walking into life in the young 20s. Somebody's thinking, what do I do with my life? But every one of these questions applies to us every day of life that God gives us. And this week, to be married or to be single. This is the positive case for marriage. 
uh, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Let's just stop right there. This is before the fall. God says it is not good. In a perfect world, what is not good? It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, often when we refer to this verse, we generalize it in its application, and appropriately so. We say it is not good for man to be alone. And that's not just the males. Remember in Genesis 1, God created man, male and female. He created them. It's mankind is male and female. It's not good for us to be alone. Loneliness is a huge, huge issue. And that loneliness in the fallen world can show itself within a marriage as well as outside of a marriage. But God says it's not good for you to be lonely, to be alone. He applies it first to Adam. And notice this time studying the passage, it says it is not good for the man to be alone. There's a definite article there. And every one of the translations that I looked at had that. And I looked back at the Hebrew and the definite article is there. God is talking about Adam himself. Before the fall, when God created Adam first, he had in his design and his plan to create us in his image, male and female. So he wasn't done with his work. It wasn't complete. Adam by himself could not have been fruitful to multiply and fill to the earth to take part in God's creative activity. And God says, this isn't good. So I'll make a helper suitable for him. We have to stop there. When we think of a helper, we think of somebody who's less in status, less in position, a subordinate, somehow not as important, don't we? That's our fallen mindset. But let's go on in the passage, and we're going to find that the whole point of the passage is that God gave his male human being created in his image an equal, a female human being. That's the one who's fit for him. That's the helper. It's not that Adam's important and she is not. They are to help one another. God condemns selfishness on both counts, on both sides. But the point is, God's going to give Adam another human being who's his complement, that we would be male and female. Let's see how this works out. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There was no one like him. No one he could talk with, identify with, share his life with. He was alone. And it wasn't good. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now let's just observe right there that this is one of God's marvelous, miraculous deeds. We don't try to figure out from science how Jesus walked on water. God is just saying he created Adam from the dust of the ground and created Eve from the the rib of Adam. 
and they are male and female made in his image, both human beings. God can do this. This isn't myth. This is what actually happened. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He recognizes his equal. He recognizes his complement. This isn't a, a creature whom he, he names as a, an animal, but is not like him. This is bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. Listen, we can, we can make extraordinary things. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read a book about the building uh, of the Brooklyn Bridge. It's phenomenal what engineering can create. But as phenomenal as that is, there's something much more mysterious when God uses husband and wife to create a baby and that baby comes into the world. A baby is another human being, much different, much more marvelous than a Brooklyn Bridge. That's a thing. This is a person. Adam recognizes Eve as his equal, his person. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The context for Genesis is the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses to give God's word to his people when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. God, through Moses, is saying, this is why marriage. Is this Pentecostal or something? I'm hearing tongues. (laughs) For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife because this is the way God made us, male and female. God's design was for marriage, and it was good. Loneliness was was not good. This was good. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, we can go into lots of speculative ideas. I've wondered. We'll find out when we get to heaven. If they hadn't fallen and turned away from God, and they'd had children, the children were growing up, we got to give them clothes anyway. Boy, that makes a lot of sense to me. Because there's something sacred in marriage, in the union, in the intimacy that comes in that context. You, when you think about it, that kind of freedom with each other is a taste of the Garden of Eden, where they were with each other in this way and felt no shame. What a wonderful thing that is. Now, you see, this is the positive case for marriage. It was God's design. It was in a perfect world, and it was a blessing. And to be lonely was not good. If we only had this verse, you know, this passage, everybody who is single might feel left out and the hurt of it. Why isn't God giving me this blessing if it's his design? What about me? And I feel lonely, and, and what do I do about that? Well, in this fallen world, we have lots of issues that uh, are our needs that we have. And we wonder, what does God do about that? Well, he addressed our fallen world by sending his son into the world to restore us to himself and to bring us back into his glorious presence forever, to restore us to the Garden of Eden. We do long for that. We do. And the loneliness is not good. But this isn't the only passage in Scripture, and that's not the only answer to that issue. There's a positive case for being single in this fallen world. Now, before we turn to that, let me set the context for 1 Corinthians chapter 7 by looking at the original marriage after the fall. 
In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve decided that they were going to decide for themselves what's right and wrong and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sinned against God and were cast out of the garden, God came to them and he brought a curse on them and on the world. Now, this curse is partial judgment. It's not the immediate uh, casting into hell. There are many blessings in this life and there are many difficulties in this life. It's a world that declares the glory of God and it's a world that is under the curse. What's a part of that curse? Well, in our relationships, the curse is that we have become selfish. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. Now, some of you fairly recently or in the next year, know you're going to experience that. And it's not as easy as it would have been apart from the fall. But that's not the only part of the curse. Look at the next verse, next part of the verse. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The meaning of that is not as apparent to us. It sounds to our ear like your desire will be for your husband. Oh, you're going you're gonna to be a loving wife, and he's going to be a chauvinist. Isn't that what it sounds like? But let's look at what that phrase, your desire will be for your husband, means in its uh, Hebrew expression. Because we have that expression come up again in the next chapter, in chapter 4. When, uh, Cain, when God comes to Cain, he says in verse, uh, it's verse 6 and 7. Verse 7 says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It's actually the same Hebrew. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. What does it mean that sin's desire is for you? Sin desires to master you. Sin desires to control you, but you must master it. If that's what that phrase means, its desire is for you, what does that say about the verse previously? When he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Our relationships are broken. We, in our sinful selves, are naturally selfish. We want our way, and we're at odds with each other. We want to master the other. So there's a kind of loneliness that's not just the original loneliness and that was in the perfect world before the fall, when God said it's not good for man to be alone. We can have a loneliness because we're alienated from each other and at odds with each other. That's why people who are in a marriage... Maybe the loneliest people in the world. They're unhappy in their marriage because they feel so alone. They're not loved the way they thought they would be loved. Their, their relationship is broken. I recognize that. And I, think, I think we need to be gentle about that. It's easy to come to church. Have you ever wonder why, what the mystery is that just because the preacher wears a coat and tie, the others dress up and you look around and their people's hair is combed, you think, well, they don't have any problems. Only I don't have problems. Everybody has difficulties at different seasons in life. Everybody does. And just because we're acceptable looking to some degree doesn't mean we don't bring all this. Just get into any small group. Get into any, Just open up a little bit with each other. We all struggle because of the fall. Because we, are not, we have sin within ourselves. We have sin against us from others. And people can be very very lonely. So marriage is not uh, the all in all either. And Paul presents a case in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 
That's the positive case for being single. Let's read that. It's in the context of a lot uh, of the whole chapter. We can't study the whole chapter. Evidently, the Corinthian church uh, wrote him and asked him some questions because he begins the chapter saying, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Actually, the, if you translate it word for word, it would be, It's good for a man not to touch a woman. They were overstating the case. Some in the Corinthian church were licentious. They just thought, it doesn't matter what you do. There was a man sleeping with his father's wife, and they thought, that's okay. We're saved by grace, not by works. And there were those who reacted against it, saying, isn't it good not to even touch a woman? Paul goes earlier in the church, he's saying, well, if you're married, that's not good. If you're married, do what God gave, gave it to you for. But he comes back to saying, it is good to be single. This is the positive case for being single. Let's begin in verse uh, 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's not countermanding everything that God has said. He doesn't have a specific command saying, this is God's will for you, be single. He's just giving his own testimony in a sense because he's, he's a single man. He might have been married as a Pharisee, but if he was, he never referred to himself that way because he must have been a young widower. It may be that he was such a leader that he was the exception to the rule. Most Pharisees were married as a part of being a a, a Pharisee, and he was the leader of the Pharisees. But Paul, who may have been the exception, and always single, he loved his state, and he's recommending it. He says, because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives shall live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if, they were, as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now, he's not saying those of you who are married live as if you were not. In other words, go out on dates. I mean, that's, that's just obnoxious to try to interpret it like that. He's saying that you don't find your ultimate fulfillment and contentment and happiness in the temporary status of things of this world. Live for the Lord. And you're stewards of the things in this life, whether it's marriage, whether it's resources, whether it's jobs, whether it's houses. You're stewards of what God has given you. And serve him in this life with those responsibilities, with those things, with those relationships. And when you do, you're going to find a contentment and a satisfaction in serving him, however well it's going in this fallen world. If it's difficult, it's passing away. If it's wonderful, don't be so engrossed in them that your whole heart is there. Your whole heart is with the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Then he says in verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried uh, woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in the right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He's just stating facts here that if you're married, you've got responsibilities you wouldn't have if you're single. You've got to be concerned about how to please your wife, how to please your husband. That's a part of God's calling, but it is carrying on more responsibilities. There's uh, uh, divided responsibilities there. He's not saying, now, now if we only had this passage, if we only had this passage in the Bible, wouldn't you be thinking, well, the really truly spiritual people are the single people. And if you're married, you're kind of half-hearted and worldly. That's, that seems to be the implication here. It's not the only passage in the Bible. What the Bible says is, there's a positive case for being married. This was God's design. It's his blessing. It wasn't good to be lonely. We do have difficulty in our marriages because of the fall. And, and yet marriage is still a blessing and a gift. It's, if that's God's will for you, accept it. Carry the responsibilities of it. Be undivided in your devotion to the Lord as you are called to love your wife, as you're called to love your husband. But it's also good to be single. If, if that is what God is leading you to do. And these are the advantages of being single. You can just be concerned about pleasing the Lord and you don't have to worry about when I'm going on this mission trip, what am I going to do with my kids? You see, this actually applies to the, the earliest too. And we need to pray for Bill and Shannon Stanton. Uh, we kept our grandchildren for one night this last week. Three grandchildren, ages four, three, and one. We really need to pray for Bill and, and, <laughs> and Cheryl Stanton as they take care for 10 days, kids of, of similar ages, and maybe rise to the call to help them. When you are married, this applies to married couples that don't have children have freedoms that married couples that do have children do. Somehow in this world, we keep setting up as an example things that blessings that God has given to other people, and we covet them. Somebody who's unhappy in their marriage can covet the freedom of the single person. Right? Somebody who's lonely and as a single can covet the blessing. Why doesn't God give me that blessing? That's why I chose that passage for the confession of sins. And being single is complicated. It's not just the stage of life that in your late teens, early 20s, even 30s, you think, Does God, is it God's will for me to get married? That's a part of why we're addressing it right now. But there are all sorts of ways to be single. You can be a, a child in a family. You're single with respect to marriage, but you have a family to be in. When it's time to go off into the world and, and do your job, do your, your thing, you're, you're a grown-up. That's what we typically think of as being the, the young single. Would God lead you to marriage or not? But you can get married and find at any moment, at any time, that accident or illness can happen and you're single again. And the grief of, of widowhood, whether widow or widower, can happen. Young or old, you can be single again. Most of us will be if we're not the ones who die first in our marriages. Hmm. You can be single again because of divorce. And you feel the loneliness of rejection, uh, you know, perhaps, 
in, in the divorce, of the, of the failure, the things fell apart, and you're single again. See, there are all sorts of ways to be a single. The Apostle Paul is saying, if, this is your, if you're married, don't get a divorce. If you're single, whether it's young single or single again, understand that you have freedoms to serve Christ in an undivided way that you didn't if you were married. But don't covet the other person's blessings. If you covet the other person's blessings, that's the, that's the secret to being unhappy. Isn't it? I'm going to repeat that. If you covet the other person's blessings, that's the secret to being unhappy. But if you Really, what's the secret of being happy then? Let's just move to that passage. It says, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And I was turning in the outline to, to Kate. I told you the outline. I'm going to do the positive case for being married, the positive case for being sing, uh, single, and the secret to being happy. And Kate looked at me and she said, what is it? I said, what do you think it is? And she thought, he said, well, contentment. Bingo. She got it first try. I called Mike, and Mike was choosing the, the music. The, it had a, a other music arrangers kind of waiting for what's the hymn of application uh, at the end. We, we talked it through, and Mike and Megan are just bleary-eyed from having their, the newest baby and you know, not sleeping all of that stage of life. And it's not easy. It's hard. And Mike said, do you realize how the irony of asking me to come up with a hymn of purpose about being content on this morning when I can hardly think? (laughs) The secret to being happy is being content. Let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul has received a gift from the Philippian church, and he's grateful for it and thanks them for it. But he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this. Because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Sometimes people lift that last verse and twist it and apply it in a way that's not meant. They think, this is my goal and I can achieve everything through Christ who gives me strength. That's not the context. The Apostle Paul is saying, I can be content in any and every circumstance through Christ who gives me strength. I can handle any circumstance through Christ who gives me strength. I can do any situation through Christ who gives me strength. The secret to happiness is contentment, whatever the circumstances. And I began to think about this. I was thinking about it all week. And I began to think, would you describe Jesus as a content person? Jesus, who at the beginning of his ministry was led out into the wilderness for 40 days he fasted. You know he was hungry. He wasn't, by his divine nature, exempt from the human dynamic, the physical dynamic of hunger. And he was 
tempted in the desert. Was he content? Well, I would say, yes, he was content. That, that's kind of evident the way we think of contentment. But what about when Jesus says to his disciples, oh, ye of little faith. Was he content with their lack of faith? No, he was discipling them. He was calling them to have faith when they had little faith. He wasn't content with their lack of faith. What about when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and he knew Jerusalem would reject him? It's one of the occasions in the Bible where Jesus wept. Can we say that Jesus was content with their sin in rejecting him? No, he wept over their sin in rejecting him. Another time he wept was after Lazarus had died and he saw the the grief in the family and friends of Lazarus and it troubled Jesus. And Jesus wept. Was he content with their grief? Was his contentment a kind of contentment that's kesara, what will be will be? Was it an apathy? Was it a fatalism saying, just accept what is and be content? No, Jesus was not content with a fallen world. That is why he came into this fallen world to go to the cross for us, to redeem us from our fallenness, that we could be restored to, to his father and to himself and to heaven. He wasn't content with the fallen world. He addressed the fallen world a great sacrifice. In fact, the last example would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was uh, praying in such agony, it was as though great drops of blood were falling to the ground. If you had been passing by and seen Jesus praying that way, would you have said, well, there's a content man? No, we wouldn't. Jesus was not content with the fallen world. He knew the pain and agony that he had to go through. But here's where Jesus was content. He wasn't divided at the bottom line in his heart about wanting his father's will. He was content to do his father's will, whatever the circumstance. Do you see how it's like the Apostle Paul here? Paul is following Jesus. Jesus was content out in that wilderness to do his father's will. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus was not content with the disciples' lack of faith, but he was content to come into this world and be with them to calm the storms, to show them who he was so that he could lead them to the cross. Jesus wasn't content with our sin. He paid the penalty of our sin to redeem us from our sin. What can we take from this? Christians often talk about the distinction between happiness and joy. And I get the distinction. Happiness is shallow, fleeting. It's here and now. Joy is abiding. It's foundational. And I love the distinction and I love what you're trying to get at. What we are trying to get at. But I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the terminology itself because it's not very satisfying to me to say, I'm not happy, but I'm full of joy. It just doesn't quite work for me. I offer you this way to think about it. We should not be content with the fallen world. We should not be content with our own fallenness. We should have the desire that this world is redeemed. We should have a delight in Christ that he redeems us from our fallenness. So we're not content with the fallen world or with our fallenness. But we can be content in a fallen world because of Christ and 
what he's done for us. Just as he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, we can, for the joy set before us in Christ, live whatever the circumstance in this fallen world, whether married or single, whether happy in relationship or whether lonely, in conflict or feeling by ourselves, because we're never by ourselves, really. Christ gives us life, sets glory before us, and we can be content in that circumstance. It doesn't make the circumstance, uh, how shall I say, God can still say in the perfect world, that's not good. He can say cancer's not good. He can say the alienation, the broken relationship is not good. He can say uh, the uh, death and the grief that comes from that is not good. And he can say, that's why I sent Jesus into this fallen world, to redeem you, to call you back, because I'm going to make everything right again. And we can long for that. And we can, for the joy set before us in Christ, be content whatever the circumstance God places us in. Here we circle all the way back to last week's sermon, finding God's will. The big issue is, do you really want God's will? Um, my brother, Bill, when he found out he had the terrible kinds of cancer, and I, I really thought this is the beginning of the end. He's gotten some good news since then, so it may not be. But he had a friend who was hammering on him about the health and wealth gospel, saying, this is not God's will. This is not God's will. We're going to pray it away from you. We're going we're gonna to have victory because I know it's not God's will. And Bill's wife, Betsy, whose father was killed in the airplane accident when she was a teenager, said, I guess it's only God's will for people to die of heart attacks and plane crashes. Because if you have any time to pray, you can say this is not God's will. And it just kind of cut through all the smoke. We live in a fallen world, and it is not God's will for us to be in love with this fallen world, to be satisfied with this fallen world. We should long for the, the glory to come and live each day with purpose in this fallen world to live for his glory. And as, as Bill and Mary and Betsy and I talked about how he should pray for his cancer, we talked about we can pray just like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. But we always pray the prayer of faith, knowing that God knows everything, and he knows best, and we want his will. And Bill sent out this uh, email to everyone, and this was just one paragraph from him. He said, Betsy and I are doing fine and feel secure that we are firmly in the arms of God, who will not be surprised by the results and who already knows what his will on this is. We want to pray that his will be done, even if it conflicts with our wishes. But we are invited to tell him our desires, and we ask that you join us in doing so. My desire is that God's will is to provide physical healing. You identify with that? There are a lot of things in your life that you could say, with God, this is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for the sin to exist. It's not good. These are things we weep over. These are things we grieve over. But is there a foundation at the bottom line to say, my trust is in God who knows everything, who knows best. And I really, really want his will to be done. So when you are in your garden of Gethsemane and you're praying, sweating as a great drops of blood, that's not a lack of contentment. 
That is uh, uh, agony, but is it on the foundation of an undivided heart saying, but Father, thy will, not mine, be done. That's the secret to contentment. And that contentment is the secret to be happy in any and every circumstance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is an extraordinary call from your word. It is not the way we naturally live. It is the work of your spirit. And we pray that you would be at work in us so that we would think and live and, and move in this way that we are satisfied in your will, whatever it is, and that when we are in distress, when we are in conflict, when we are lonely, when, whether we are married or single, whether we are healthy or sick, whether we are abounding or abasing, we pray that you would give us a contentment in being wrapped in your arms, knowing that your will is best, and let us want your will to be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.